William Blake wrote a poem called The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. And C.S. Lewis, playing off that poem, wrote a novel called The Great Divorce of Heaven and Hell. And it's a novel imagining souls that live in hell taking a bus ride to the outskirts of heaven. And each chapter is an encounter between a visitor from hell and an inhabitant of heaven. Those from hell are wispy, they're translucent, they're barely substantial. And those they meet who will live in heaven are luminous and bright and full and at last real. And in each of the episodes, you see an encounter between one and the other, and the spirit from heaven is trying to urge the one from hell to make a choice that they might enter into the beauty of heaven. Each one is forced a choice upon them. This is an episode from that novel about an artist and someone she encounters who's from heaven. This is a scene from The Great Divorce adapted by Katie Winkler. What do you mean, God what? In our grammar, God is a noun. Oh, I see. Well, I only meant good Lord or something of that sort. But it's, well, all this, it's amazing. I've got to paint this. Oh, I shouldn't bother about that at present if I were you. I am going to be allowed to go on painting, aren't I? Looking comes first. But I have had my look. I've seen just what to do. I wish I brought my art supplies. But that sort of thing's no good here. What do you mean? When you painted on earth, at least in the early days, it was because you caught glimpses of heaven and the earthly landscape. Exactly. Back then, any success that you had is because it enabled others to see those glimpses too. That's right. But here, you are having the thing itself. It is from here that the messages came. I'm so confused. There's no business telling us about this country because we see it already. In fact, we see it better than you do. And there's never going to be any point in painting here? I didn't say that. Once you've grown into a person... I'm not a person? Not really. That's ridiculous. It's okay. We all had to do it. Had to do what? I don't understand. When it happens, there are some things that you'll be able to see better than anyone, and you'll want to tell us about it, but not yet. But I'm ready now, don't you see? Being an artist, painting, it's who I am, it's what I do. At present, your business is to see. Come and see. He is endless. Come, be fed. Fantastic. Come then. How soon do you think I could begin painting? <sighs> don't you see? You'll never paint at all if that's all you think about. You know, I really don't understand a word you say. Okay, let me rephrase it. If you are interested in this country only for the sake of painting it, then you'll never learn to see it. But I'm interested in the country because I want to paint it. You were an artist once. Did you forget that? No, it is you who are forgetting. Remember, remember back then. What? Love was your first light. You loved painting because it allowed you to tell about the light. That's ages ago. I, I grew out of that. Of course, you haven't seen my later works. I've become more and more interested in painting for its own sake. Ah, yes. I also had to recover from that. Recover? It was all a snare. You were so weird. Every poet and musician and artist but for grace is drawn away from the love of the thing he tells to the love of the telling till down in deep hell. They're not interested in God at all, but only in what they say about him. For it doesn't stop him being interested in painting, you know. 
Then they sink lower and become interested in their own personalities and then in nothing but their own reputations. No, I, I don't think that that's me. Excellent. You know, we hadn't quite gotten all over the whole I am an artist thing when we first arrived, but if there is any of that inflammation left, it will be cured when you come to the fountain. Fountain? Oh, yes, it is up there in the mountains, very cold and clear between two green hills. I don't see anything. Oh, when you drink from the fountain, you will forget all ownership of your own works. I will? Oh, yes, you'll be able to enjoy your paintings as if they were somebody else's without pride and without modesty. Well, doesn't that sound just grand? Come then. Of course, there will always be interesting people to meet. Yes, of course, everyone will be interesting. No, no, no. I mean interesting to people like me. Will I meet Man uh, Monet, Van Gogh, Cezanne? Sooner or later, if they are here. But don't you know? Of course not. I've only been here a few decades. I couldn't possibly know. I mean, there are a good many of us. But surely in the case of distinguished people, but they aren't distinguished any more than anyone else. The glory flows into everyone and out from everyone like light and mirrors. But the light is the thing. Okay, so no famous people. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to say. Don't you understand? They are all famous, all known, all remembered, all recognized by the only great mind with perfect judgment. I'll have to be content with my legacy then. Oh, my dear, don't you know? Know what? That we've already been completely forgotten on Earth. What? I, what did you expect? You can't get $100 for a painting of mine or even oh, yours no. today. Let me go. I have a duty to the future of art. I have to get back to my agents, my patrons. I have a big sh art show next month. I, I can't miss that. Let me go. It's not one artist, it's two. Both the visitor from hell and the inhabitant of heaven both know a few things about art, but it's the visitor from hell that as you saw on her face and you heard in her words was frustrated, exasperated, distraught about what she was being asked to do, about changing her mind, about art, though both of them appreciated it for its own sake. So what? I'll tell you so what. What you just saw is an explanation about why Christmas matters and what it means. And if you aren't sure, listen again closely to what you just heard sung and we'll refer to it again from Hebrews chapter one. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of his majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Christmas, you know, is a celebration. The reason it's a celebration, though, is because it's making a claim. It is a story, and you've just heard that story, but it's more than a story. It's a story that's making an argument. And that argument is twofold, one that is deep and second that is deeper. The first one is this. Every one of you in this room was born, and every one of you in this room will die. Merry Christmas. <laughs> wow, why did I come to that? You are born, you will die. That's the sequence. It's invariable. 
What's different about Jesus? He came. He was born. But he didn't just, wasn't going to just die after being born. He was born in order to die. It wasn't just a random tragic act. He was out to fulfill a purpose by his death. He was born in order to die. Look, by that point in the Deathly Hallows, the biggest reveal we got is that Harry Potter wasn't just in danger, wasn't just, didn't just have the, the, the crosshairs of malice upon his forehead. He was born to die, to ward off evil from the land that he inhabited. He came not just to live, not just to learn, not just to grow, but in order to die. And when Dumbledore tells Snape, Snape realizes what you've been doing is you've been grooming him like a pig for a slaughter. And Dumbledore says, yes, that's the truth. I wonder where J.K. Rowling got that idea. You don't have to go far. He was born in order to die. That's the first deep claim. But the second claim is even deeper. You heard it in verse 3. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That Jesus was more than just a man, more than just a religious figure. He was the one in whom the fullness of God dwelt. Oppenheimer. He and his coterie of brilliant folk were responsible for the creation of an atomic bomb. They were the pioneers of a tragic decision, a tragic beginning. But when you think clearly about what he did, he created nothing. All he did and his group was penetrate into the deepest ministry, mysteries of the physical reality and figure out a way to marshal it and liberate it. And he becomes a tragic pioneer. If you look at Jesus... He is not simply one who came to speak to you and teach you about God. If you want to know what Jesus is, he is the access into the very center of reality. If you want to understand the very basis of existence and the basis of all things, all you have to do is look at him. He is at the center of all things, and by him all things hold together. That is the celebration of Christmas. That is its claim. But before it is ever a celebration, it is a confrontation of every single person in this room and in every single person on this planet. And that is why we had you listen to those eight minutes about from the great divorce. Christmas is a confrontation. Two things, one deep and the other deeper. What is the artist struggling with? She is being asked to come and see the beauty, the source of all beauty, not just to see it, but to savor it, to bask in it, to feed upon it. She is being invited to come enjoy that, to revel in it. And what does she want to do? Yeah, that's all great. I want to paint it. Just let me paint it. And the Spirit says, what are you doing? What? This is the source of all beauty, and you're more interested in capturing a two-dimensional version of it. Do you see yourself? Are you listening to yourself? The Spirit is confronting her in the same way that Christmas is confronting you. The spirit is confronting that spirit, that visitor from hell, who is settling. She was settling for the hints, the echoes, the impressions, the intimations of where all the beauty comes from. And she was not interested in going any further to understand any of it. Friends, that's your problem. That's my problem. 
We love the hints. We love the books. We love the films. We love the art. We love the pleasures. We love all of it. But we're just not interested in going to where the source of all that beauty comes from. And so what C.S. Lewis writes there in a sort of a poetic way, he says this in a more prosaic way in another writing. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trusted them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, and news from a country we have never visited. You settle. You prefer the smaller things, the hints, rather than going for the source. And Christmas is out to confront you with how you settle it. And that is just a symptom of an even deeper problem that's also confronting you, and it's this. What she wanted is what you want, and it's what I want. She wanted kids, if you remember the word. She wanted glory. She wanted to touch it and taste it. She wanted to know that she was significant. She wanted to know that she was good. She wanted to be recognized. She wanted fame. She wanted to know that she mattered. And every one of you in this room wants to know that you matter. That you're not nothing. That this world is not just a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. You want to know that it matters. And she wanted to know that it matters. What is her problem? She felt like she could create her own version of it. She felt like she could establish, predict, and fashion her own version of glory such that when she was being invited to go taste and see where the glory came from, she turns back in the direction of hell, preferring to make her own version. Why? Because she was afraid. Afraid that she doesn't matter. Afraid that she wouldn't matter. And so are you. And that's why you would prefer to create your own version of what would make you glorious rather than bask in a version of glory in which you belong to him, in which he proves to you that you matter by what he has done for you and his son. From the beginning of Advent, we have appealed to one very funny story about this problem that we all have, and his name is Uncle Rico. And he was in that film, Napoleon Dynamite. And throughout that movie, you hear him long, long for something. He longs for glory. And if you've never seen it, and if you just want to hear it again, catch it. Here it comes. How much you want to make a bet I can throw a football over the mountains? Well, if a coach would have put me in fourth quarter, we'd have been state champions, no doubt. No doubt in my mind. You better believe things would have been different. I'd have gone pro a heartbeat. I'd be making millions of dollars and living in a big old mansion somewhere. You know, soaking it up in a hot tub with my soulmate. Kip, I reckon you know a lot about cyberspace. You, you ever come across anything like time travel? Easy. I've already looked into it for myself. Right on. Right on. Lowest budget film, immeasurably rich theme. That's your story. You want glory. 
and so do I. And what's told there in a humorous way is what you heard even more poignantly put in another way. When you're young, you think your glory is within your reach, and if I just do this, this, or this, I'll get it. And when you're older, you realize maybe it wasn't there, and then you think your glory is in the rearview mirror. Christmas is saying you're both wrong. Glory that you most want, the desire that you most have, the beauty that you most want to be mingled with, it's not within your reach. It's only a gift, and it's not behind you. It's still before you. And that's what the artist didn't believe, and so she turns in the direction of hell to go find her own. That's the confrontation that the celebration of Christmas is out to bring to every heart. And that's why I'll land it plain this way. It is a celebration that begins with a confrontation, but it finally lads and leads with one thing, an invitation. It is inviting you to consider something that if you've never done before, that you would please just give up. Surrender your hopeless, hapless attempt to secure your own glory and preserve your own name, and build your own reputation, and devise your own destiny. Give up, man. Yield. Stop settling for the hints of beauty, and instead walk further into the source of it. Stop trying to create your own glory, and instead believe this. You do matter. You matter because he loves you, and he became like you. He came exactly like you, so that you could become like him. Give up. Yield. There are any number of days you could do this. I can think of a lot worse days than on Christmas Day, if you've never done it before, you give up. And you say, I'm in. I yield. I surrender. It is an invitation to give up. And then what does that look like? Let me tell you through the words of somebody that gave up this year, that surrendered their will to find their own glory in their own way. And if you've been in our church, you've heard his name before, because his name is Matthew B. Crawford. He was an electrician in college. He becomes a political scientist. And after he finishes doing that, he realizes academia is not what he thought it was. He becomes a motorcycle repairman. He starts writing books like Shop Classes Soulcraft. And this year he became a Christian. And he's afraid even to talk about it because he doesn't want to profane the experience. But he wrote an article that I think is actually him telling his story without him telling his story. And he says, faith is like something that many of us in this room can relate to, like riding a bike. Some of you are idiots by riding on your mountain bikes in this area. You're just idiots. <laughs> but when you do it, you're a sight to behold. And as Matthew B. Crawford says, you, 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 you change the brakes and you put on the, dan put on the brakes and you, you accelerate and you turn the wheel and all of those inputs, it's helping you to navigate the terrain. It's helping you to keep control in ways that you can. But you know, if you've ever done that, there are moments in which you realize, you know what? I can't put in the inputs. This is going to happen whether I like to or not. And you let go. That is the thrill. That's called risk. And you know who knows risk better than all of you old fogies in the room? The kids. You know what thrill is. You know what risk is. It's this thing you know as the word play. Faith, Matthew B. Crawford came to realize this year, is something like play. Like riding a bike, but like doing anything. Like kids do. They play. And he put it this way. Is, then, is there then something bold and life-affirming in faith as there is in play? Maybe that is why people of easy and resolute religious faith seem lighthearted as the courageous do. 
To trust in providence relieves one of anxiety for the future. To believe that the reality of the world is somehow trustworthy would seem to be something further. It relieves one of anxiety for the present. That's real abandon. A person in that state is in possession of a gift and he shines. You are invited, if you never have before, to give up trying to secure your own glory so that you then can learn how to play. When you know your future is secure and you know that your present anxieties, no matter how deep they are and no matter how real they have a reason for being there, are still not greater than the glory still to come. That's the invitation to you and to us all. How do you apply Christmas? Last year I told you that if you can go out tonight and you can, it's beautiful. Go look at a star and remember, in the words of J.R. Tolkien, there is always something bright and luminous that is high above the deepest darkness that you might be facing in this moment. That is true because of Christmas, and that's why they follow the star. That's what you should do last Christmas. You can do it again this Christmas, too. Here's what you're going to do to apply Christmas this year. If you can, if it's within your power, do something to play. Thrill, risk, fall laugh, ice, heat, whatever it takes, just play. That is the most practical, concrete thing I can imagine about what it means to be invited into the center of glory and to know that your future is secured by providence and your present is bigger than even your biggest anxiety because of his glory. That's Christmas. That's what you've been invited to. That's what all of us, whether artists or not, is tempted of forsaking. And that is what all of us artist or not, is being invited to embrace as a gift by faith. Before we sing, before we light our candles, before we say goodnight, let's be quiet for a moment. I'll pray. Father, we are all about to enter into our places where it's going to be noisy. And in the din of that, we give you thanks. But we pray that in our celebration, that you might also remind us that there is no celebration without first having a confrontation with what is deepest in us. And to whatever extent, we have never considered that perhaps, or to whatever consent we may have forgotten along the way, we would ask that you would preserve us and invite us and allow us to play and to rest in you by your son's work, coming as us, dying for us, and making us like you by faith in him and in him alone. Praise you for this day. We ask that you would remind us that light shines in the darkness.